Welcome to Fontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 64, Pope Benedict I. Ooh, our first Benedict. It is our first Benedict of many Benedicts. As we know, because of uh, recent events, we will have 16 Benedicts in the history of the church. This is number one. All right, tell me about Pope Eggs I. Pope Egg the First. Okay, so Pope Eggs the First was born in Rome, and his father was called Bonifacius. So Boniface, bony face. The full Latin version of his name is Benedictus, but Evagrius Scholasticus refers to him as Bonosis as well. So Benedict might also be Bonosis. Pretty nose. Pretty nose. The Bono is a big one. We haven't dealt with a Pope that has that whole Bono prefix to the name, but we have dealt with other people along the way that have been Bonus or something similar to that. So it is definitely a popular name. But while we're talking about his name, let's talk about that name Benedict for a minute, because it is the third most common papal name. As we just said, there will be 16. All right. So so there's John. Mm-hmm. And what, like Pius? Ooh, no, close. Pius is a is a large name, but the two most common papal names are John and Gregory. Oh, Gregory. It's also tied for the most common anti-papal name. No, there's a lot of anti-Benedicts. There are a lot of anti-Benedicts. It's tied with anti-Clements. So that would logically indicate to us that if we're going to have a lot of popes named this, a lot of anti-popes named this, that this Benedict would be a pretty significant figure, and they would be naming themselves after him. Like, we know that John became such a prominent papal name because of the martyrdom and reverence for Pope John I, and we know that Gregory the First is going to be a banger. So logic dictates that Benedict must be special. However, <laughs> I mean, he could also just not be special at all. Well, so kind of. So what ended up happening there is that the majority of popes who end up taking Benedict as their papal name have not taken it for the pope but they have taken it because of St. Benedict of Nursia, who died only about 30 years before this Benedict's papacy. So they're not necessarily taking it because of this guy, they're taking it from another quite revered person in the church. So St. Benedict of Nursia founded monastic communities and created what is called the Rule of St. Benedict, which becomes the foundation of monastic convention. So we're going to be dealing with this quite a bit because you're going to hear the phrase Benedictine monk. Yeah. Long before the order of St. Benedict actually starts, when we refer to Benedictine monks in the first little bit of this show, we're talking about monks who follow the rule of St. Benedict, which is basically where monasteries start. St. Benedict of Nursia did not create the Benedictines as we know them today, though, but that does get founded on much later and is inspired by him. So if we say Benedictine monk now, there's still not the official order that will come a little bit later. So 
St. Benedict of Nursia is also a really big deal because he's one of the six patron saints of all of Europe. <laughs> all of Europe. Of all of Europe. So, I mean, that's a patron sainthood. I want to be the patron saint of Europe. That's a pretty, pretty good one to have. It's a substantial one, for sure. Absolutely. So, our Pope Benedict, by comparison, is a little less impressive and inspiring. So, unfortunately for him. And... Once again, just like last week, one of the reasons that Benedict is going to be less impressive and inspiring is that we know almost nothing about him. Just like our silky dog, Pope John III, almost all of the records from the time of his papacy have been destroyed. Thanks, barbarians. All of those Lombards coming on in, so... And just like with our last pope, Benedict was elected to the papacy shortly after his predecessor's death, so he was elected in July of 574, but because they have this new thing where they have to wait for imperial confirmation before he can be consecrated, and because the Lombard situation made it that much more complicated to actually communicate with Constantinople, there is an unintended sede vacante of almost a year, like 11 months, before he could officially assume the papacy in June of 575. Again, we have 11 months without an official pope and just a pope-elect. It's a really stupid system, and it's going to keep happening for a bit. Tea. Are you drinking tea or spilling the tea? I was drinking the tea. I spilled the tea about the popes all day. This is what I do. So we're going to cover what we know from his papacy. We know that Benedict conducted at least one confirmation of holy orders in December where he ordained 15 priests, 3 deacons, and 21 bishops. We haven't had that in a while, so it's nice to just throw in that we're, we're having another holy orders. Unfortunately, the only reason that we know about this ordination at all is that one of the deacons that gets ordained at that time was the future Pope Gregory I. Everybody wants to write about what's going on with Gregory. Uh-huh, Gregory's important. The only other thing that we can absolutely verify from his papacy is that Benedict bestowed an estate called the Massa Veneris in Miturne, which is in modern-day Miturno in Lazio, to an abbot called Stephen from St. Mark's in a diocese that was, quote, near the walls of Spoleto. And again, we only know this because it's mentioned in a later epistle from Pope Gregory I, Epistle 9, line 87. So we don't know why the specific abbot was granted the estate, but by Gregory's time, it will be an established monastery of the monks of St. Theodore. So Benedict has paved the way for this monastery at some point. Something that he's done. And because that's all we can actually verify about his papacy, we're going to go and revisit what's going on in Rome in the development of this Lombard invasion slash foundation of the Lombard kingdom. Though we have no record of Benedict's personal interaction with the situation, we know that Benedict was living through this, and it would have affected him as much as it affected the whole of Italy. So it's important for us to contextualize what's going on during this papacy and what it would have looked like for him. In the initial onset of the Lombard invasion, the German tribe entered Italy en masse, but they also didn't come alone. The majority of the invading tribal people were the Lombards, of course, because they're 
It's known as the Lombard Invasion. But nearly 20,000 members of a smattering of other Germanic and Saxon tribes followed them. So this is a very, very large introduction of people into Italy. And the invasion occurred practically at breakneck speed, and an overwhelming force that was capable of taking over everything in their path and settling wherever they pleased to establish their families. And remember, all that was left in terms of imperial might in Italy had all been withdrawn and centered around Ravenna under the command of Longinus, Narcy's replacement, so they didn't even have close to a chance to hold back any of this incoming force. And let's also not forget that the Ostrogoths had been pushed out of dominance by the Empire, but they'd never really entirely been removed from Italy. They continued to live there, and often they joined the Lombards in any fight against the Imperial forces that they could. Right? They're still mad about being forced out. Here's Paul the Deacon's account. In these days, many Roman nobles were killed through avarice, Lombard avarice and the rest were distributed among the invaders to pay a third part of their produce to the Lombards and were made tributary. In the seventh year after the arrival of Alboin and his nation, the churches had been despoiled by the Lombard dukes, the priests slaughtered, the cities ravaged, and the people exterminated who lived by the cultivation of crops, except in those regions in which Alboin had conquered, and Italy for the most part was taken and subdued by the sword. I don't like that phrase. No, it's it's not a great time. It is a bad time to be in Italy. Anywhere in Italy, really. Unless you were, like, directly under Alboin. It's not a good time. Within four years of the first waves, the Lombards had assumed control of almost all of Italy, with the first official capital being set up in Pavia, and then they divided Italy into roughly 35 duchies to administrate all over everything that they had to do. The major exceptions being Ravenna, which was the last holdout of the Byzantines, and Rome, which at this time sort of experienced a precarious sense of freedom from both the Empire and the Lombards, but in a way that could hardly be counted as beneficial. So, even though they weren't under direct control of one or the other, Rome's ability to communicate or conduct business or trade with pretty much anywhere else was monumentally hindered by the ensuing chaos, which also means that there would be no relief coming for them for the ongoing famine and disease that we've been talking about either. Yeah, there's no imports. Yeah, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing going out. There's nothing coming in. And to make matters worse, Rome experienced a several-year period right at this time of inordinately bad weather. Oh, no. And you know what that does? It only exacerbates the lack of food. Yeah. And led to flooding of the Tiber River. So, you know, when you have extensive flooding in the middle of the city, that only ever leads to more disease. And it wasn't as if the Lombards were going to go and get to Rome anytime soon. Because just because they were conquering all over the place didn't mean for a moment that the Lombards were anything close to a unified force. But also they're like, I heard this place is trash. Let's not go there. Exactly, exactly. They have no desire to go to this place that is flooded and full of starving, diseased people. It's not a good time for them. But it is important to remember that we, we keep calling them the Lombard invasion, the Lombards, the Lombards. 
but the Lombards are not unified whatsoever. By 572, King Alboin, who had led the invasion and expanded through Italy, was assassinated in a plot conspired by his wife Rosamond to avenge the fact that Alboin had killed her father. Mm, I have questions. <laughs> well, there's this whole story that basically Alboin killed her father and then made a cup from his skull and made her drink from it. On, like, their wedding night. Okay, so, like, they got married after he murdered her father? That's how it seems, yeah. The the details are a little bit sketchy, but yeah, it seems like it was not a love match, for sure. So, clearly, she was never going to forgive him. No. So she has him assassinated. She then escapes any retribution by fleeing to Ravenna and the Byzantines. So she's like, oh no, my husband's dead, please help me. Did she bring his head as a cup? If she did, she kept it quiet, because the next thing she does is maybe she took Longinus the Exarch in Ravenna to be her lover, and then... Wow, that's a high-ranking uh, rebound there. It's a high-ranking rebound? Even better, because then apparently she has him murdered by her other co-conspirator. This is Black Widow Woman all over this situation. Ooh. Yeah, so she just jumps sides, gets the biggest guy on both sides, and has them killed. So Alboin was succeeded by another man called Clef, who was even- <laughs> Yeah, Clef. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I know, you're gonna love all of these Lombard names that we have to go over in the next little bit. They're great. Clef was even worse. And he also got himself assassinated about a year and a half later in 574. And at this point, after Clef was assassinated, there is no clear successor, and the whole of this Lombard kingdom decentralized into a period referred to as the Rule of the Dukes, where all the leaders of those 35 individual duchies that they had put together fought against each other for control. And chaos ran ramshod all over Italy, and all the Italian people are suffering under these dukes who are now like, mine! It's the gift from uh, Finding Nemo of all the seagulls. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is where Rome comes back into the picture, because during this chaotic period of the rule of the dukes, Rome once more becomes a target for power. Right? Even though it is a place of trash... Um, they know that it's a garbage place, but they understand the historical significance and the legacy that the city of Rome has. So all of these dukes were trying to get ahead of the 34 others competing against them are going to look at something like Rome and go, Hey, that would be, that would be great for me to have. And although the details are very vague, we know that in 579, Rome was again under siege for control in that conflict. And it was during this siege and the onset of further famine and flooding and pestilence and plague that Pope Benedict I dies on July 30th of 579. The Liber Pontificalis says he died in the midst of these hardships. Yeah, I would too. Yeah, I mean, it's a good time to give up the ghost. Just go. Wendy Reardon's entry says that he died from illness, but other sources say that he was killed in the siege. So 
We can't be sure if he just succumbed to the conditions or whether he was actively killed in the ongoing fight, but... I mean, it could be both. Like, here's a siege. Also, you died. You could be really, really sick and then somebody hit you in the back of the head with a rock and it was just... Right. You know, final straw. Nope. This is where I lay down and die. So... Could be both. Poor Benedict. He was buried in the sacristy in the Basilica of St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed during the renovation to New Peter's, and no fragments or epitaph have survived. How dare they? I know, right? This is why we know nothing about this Pope. This is why we are literally under 20 minutes of recording, and we're done, and we're gonna rate him. How dare they just, like, up his whole tomb? Yeah, usually at least we get a piece of something. Yeah, at least they're like, oops, we made a bad. No, they're just like, ah, it's gone forever. Goodbye, Benedict. So usually it's like, if so, if it, if this happens and my husband were here, he would sing, when it's gone, it's gone forever, which is like <laughs> a really weird, we had to go, our, our daughter was in third grade and it was like, uh, about the rainforest and dead animals and it was like, uh, Supposed Whoa. to be, I don't even know. It was like their their yearly musical, like, you know, children sing songs about things. But it right? was definitely like, when they're gone, they're gone forever. I mean, good. It's good that we're, we're getting them aware about climate change so early, but wow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, someone should have told the renovators of New Peters, when it's gone, it's gone forever. Right. Poor Benedict. That's why we're already going to rate him. And that should be interesting. Papatum infallium. He held some ordinations, and he bestowed an estate that would be founded into a monastery. That is it. <laughs> All right, well, let's give him like a two. That's two good things. Okay, that's two good things. I think we as a team have to give him a two, because if we give him a two each... That is too many. <laughs> that is too many. Two good things deserve two good points. Yeah, especially since, um, well, we'll see as we go into our next category. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing. Zero. It's a zero. Oh, dear. Seculari impactum. Nothing. <laughs> zero. Well, the secular impact he might have had is that a Lombard might have killed him. <laughs> Maybe? Maybe. No. Zero. It's still a zero, but I'm reaching for straws here. Fossium Sanctus. I believe if you look at this, he's going to score some points here. Okay, I really want to see this man. You're laughing already. That's not good. Okay, are you ready? No. I'm not going to start drinking though. Oh my god. <laughs> Why doesn't he have eyeballs? I don't know. <laughs> My guess here oh, is because someone he... forget to finish his painting. Oh, that would be fitting, wouldn't it? If you look at it, my guess is that his eyes were closed, and the fact that it's a little bit smudgy just makes <laughs> it looks like um, you know, in like sci-fi films where like someone's eyes roll in the back of their head because they're doing like the exorcism thing. They're warging into somebody or. You know, I'm going to send you the other versions of the same one that we have. And, and so that you can see that in every version, he has no eyeballs. Perhaps Pope Benedict I is a warg. 
and he just he just went into he was too sick and he went into his animal companion and lived <laughs> out his life as whatever perhaps a lombard <laughs> he just took over a lombard yeah i mean i'd like to think that he got to go and do more things that were perhaps more memorable but okay he's now a what what would you call it? a, a wear lombard <laughs> well i don't uh, i don't know I'm going to now put a comment here that he's Pope Benedict the Ware Lombard. When we come back to this in several years, when we've finished all of the popes, and we go, what were we talking about? That will be there in the notes. It's his fault for not having eyeballs. He definitely doesn't have... It kind of... In the, in, the, in the first image that I sent you, which has obviously been enhanced to sort of get rid of that crack that we've seen through some of them, they just kind of look like they're glowy voids in his face. Yeah, like he's Morgan. He's just straight up Morgan into something. I assume it's a Lombard. <laughs> they're the nearest <laughs> things. There's no animals if they're eating babies, so. It's true, so he's now aware Lombard, and that's gonna win him some points, I'm gonna say. <laughs> this is an eight for me. All right, I was gonna give him like a seven. He's too okay. weird. So that's a 15, which calculated out gives him 3.75. Oh, good. He finally got some points for something. And it's not going to get much better for him because... Tempus Pontificus. He was Pope from June 2nd, 575, to July 30th of 579, which was four years, giving him a score of one. All right, everybody. It's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. No. Oh. <laughs> Can't be the patron saint of wargs. Which is very disappointing, because that would be perfect. But that does bring us to his total score. Is it like a 5? It's a 6.75, so yeah, real close. So yeah, then I have to ask you no. if this... <laughs> no. No, he is not worthy of a papal bull, unfortunately. It would be nice if we could give him one just for being a were lombard but at some point, all of the people who win a papal bull will have to compete against one another, and that would just be cruel. Yeah, he wouldn't win unless he could, you know, teleport into somebody else. I mean, now I kind of want that to happen. This Pope fanfiction has gotten weird. Oh my gosh, can someone write that? I, I don't care if it's like Chuck Tingle level fanfiction here, but like, the Pope warged into a Lombard and, you know. I'll, uh, I'll leave the rest up to your imagination, but somebody, please, write us a fan fiction. So, on that note, since he is not papal bullworthy, we have some thank yous to make, and we are going to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor as always, and I would like to also thank the Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope for recommending us on Twitter this morning. What? Yeah, they uh, they tweeted about our recent episode that we just posted on Pope Pelagius. And they said it was worth listening to, if only for the fact to listen to Fry giggle every time that Bree says diptychs. <laughs> I do like the word diptychs. The final thing we're going to shout out about is if you are a history podcaster and you are listening to us, you should join our history podcasts Discord server because we just did a pub night where everyone got on the voice chat. I didn't get on the voice chat. 
You did not, but but we had a a fun group, and we all talked about historically accurate films, which ones we approve of, which ones we don't, what the value of being accurate is, what makes a good historical film, and also a lot of just shooting the sh- So that was uh, a whole group of us. It was a lot of fun, and if you want to be a part of something like that, join us on Discord. I think it's just open invitation. You just have to look for history podcasts. And if you're a listener, you can still join there's lots of chat happening there um yeah it's a good time check it out people normally have to at me because i don't heavily pay attention to it but yeah and that's fair there's like 80 people in there yeah. already so it's it's a good group if you want to blither with history podcasters so come join us there and on that note we could say thank you and goodbye goodbye mm-hmm.